I think the most important thing is to always have a process that's able to learn from itself. The important part of this is not necessarily the tools, the technology, it's the cultural sort of phenomena of looking at data and then being able to explain things and having a feedback loop, right? New people are the lifeblood. Like they are the signal to the feedback loop of you know, how are things working. And I think people that are successful leaders are people that are always willing to learn and are always happy to learn and want to. Hi, I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Shelby Spees. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. If you've ever been the person trying to bring in the the new tool or the new technique or the new anything into an established dynamic, then you're going to feel that pain, I think. And what you'll realize pretty quickly is this is all like all technical problems. Ultimately, it's a people problem. Mm-hmm. A lot of it comes from fear, I think. A lot of it comes from, you know, there's the the classic who moved my cheese, right? Like when you go in to sort of establish processes and establish practices and you start moving things around or you want to move things around that it engenders a lot of fear. Or exhaustion, you know? Yeah, exhaustion, fear, like, because everyone's been there before, right? Like yeah. I think it's easy for us to get into this habit of, I think it's a thing that I have to self-talk myself out of all the time, which is, oh, it's so obvious, yeah, the bad vendor habit. Yeah, the bad vendor habit. Because we're immersed in this, right? As people that talk to developers for a living and yeah. you know, talk about what our company does, what our product does. But to us, it's so obvious that like, oh, this is the best thing in the world and obviously you should use it. But if you are, if your day-to-day is kind of go in and you're, you're doing work for whatever qualifies as work, right? Your core mission is not this. Like, this is completely orthogonal. In the ideal world, you would focus 100% of your time and energy on your mission. Yeah, absolutely. And all this other stuff is a distraction, right? And I also feel like there's something interesting here in that if you're asking someone to learn something new, to change their process, their tool, what you're offering them has to be an order of magnitude better than what they have in order for you to honestly say yes. I don't care what you're doing. This is worth your time. This is worth your energy. This is worth right. It, it has to be 10, 20, 50 times, right? It has to be an order of magnitude better for it to be, you know, really worth the investment. And I really think that all these tools and everything, it is just in the last maybe two years that I think that it's actually approached that, you know, 10x. I think that if we could look at the door report metrics, we, we could go off on a whole tangent there. Let's just say that, you know, it is better. So yeah, you're this engineer. And this is where like ownership, I think is so key. Like, People, I think often engineers feel like they don't have a lot of power, mm-hmm. but an engineer's power is wrapped up in your ability to do things, your ability to build and do that gives you ownership, that gives you credibility. If you don't build it, nothing exists, right? No, I think that's true. And I think it, it also, I mean, to look at it from another angle, it's also a statement about there's another type of building, right? And that's the relationship building. That's the professional sort of convincing people about your position. And mm-hmm. I think that's actually one of the better things that like the DevRel community or that you like why you should listen to us is not necessarily because 
we are the builders and doers. We do build things. We do do things. But the real value is like, look, we are interfaces, right? We are here to connect you to those stories and give you those convincing anecdotes and give you the things you need to take back to sort of inspire hope. Because I think that's, that's how you combat it. You combat fear with hope. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. This guy said, you know, his team, the platform team, they're on it, right? They're investing in this stuff. They're seeing the benefits. They're sold. And they're having a hard time, like, making that leap. And they've been pushing, you know, all of the articles and all the stuff that we say over to that other teams around them. Mm-hmm. And the other teams just aren't nibbling. And I think it's, like, there's a lot of context here that we don't know. Like, sure. How senior is this person? How long have they been there? How much credibility do they have? What are they known for being expert in? How good of a communicator are they? Like, What's the relationship with the other teams and managers? How much tool cross-pollination? Like, there's so much here that we don't know. But like, this question for me really starts to zero in on just how critical the senior engineers, however you define that, like if they don't want to adopt this stuff, it's never going to get tracked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this question is so aligns with like my own personal experience. Like I'm not that far removed from being the person trying to push exactly these changes and showing the senior people on my team. And they're like, oh, well, it's all hype. And, you know, they don't trust vendors, Mm -hmm. things like that. And, and, you know, in retrospect, I realized like the way I was communicating this stuff probably needed work, but also like I didn't have the bandwidth. I didn't have the time Mm -hmm. to like sit down and do the work to actually show them the difference. And I think that it's really, really common where people are too spread thin to like, Mm-hmm. even just start making the changes that'll make them less spread thin mm-hmm. where like we just don't have that slack in our our teams and like we're just piling tasks and piling work on top of ourselves and if you're like fairly new to the team you are just beginning to establish your credibility you know and you're very you don't want to go way out in the limb like you're very conscious of the, oh, you're just starry-eyed. Oh, you're too young to know better. Oh, you'll be scarred. Like that attitude is super real. And in some ways it's super legit. (laughs) And in some ways it's not. So like, I think that there are a few strategies. Like if it's working for you, like the engineering superpower is doing things. And if you have the cycles, like in theory, the whole premise of this stuff is that if you bring it in, it makes your life better. It gives you time back. It is an investment, not a cost, right? And so like if your team has brought something in and made it work, I think that you're going to have so much more credibility than any of us out here talking on the perimeter, right? We can help inform you about like, you know, how to communicate it, but like maybe doing an internal like lunch and learn, or it's weird how infrequently we really track what we ourselves are doing. Like how often are we getting paged? How long does it take to recover? Mm-hmm. Are these trending good or bad? You know, like I think that there's a lot that we can do as engineers, instead of just throwing up our hands going, well, you know, they're not doing what I told them to. We can actually show the evidence that it is making an impact the ways that it's helping, the ways that it has helped give us so much more time back. This is why we look for champions, right? Anytime that we're looking at an account, we look for those champions because we know that they have so much more credibility than we do as vendors. So I think another way, it's apocryphal maybe, but the story of like someone that built a bot to track how much time people are in meetings, 
Mm-hmm. Right. So you keep the little running counter and then someone, the, the joke is always, okay, now you attach that to everyone's salary and mm-hmm. you see exactly how much this meeting costs. Yeah. And you can do a similar thing by looking at, you know, looking at on-call, looking at incident response, looking at like, okay, how many people are we pulling in yeah. to each incident? How much time is this taking away from? How costly is this for us? Is right. How, literally, what does this cost? And most of the time you'll find, I think if you do the math, any amount of adding observability and trying to modernize sort of how you think about this will save you money. Oh yeah. Um, quickly. <laughs> Immediately. Very, very quickly. I did this at a, it wasn't with observability, it was with testing at a older job where I, I came in and I mean, it took several years to get to the point where I had the credibility to do this. But to kind of what you said earlier, you know, it's like, oh, we had this very old legacy test system that was frustrating enough, just frustrating enough to cause a lot of problems, but not frustrating enough to get that netherworld region. <laughs> right. It was. It never quite hit the, it was skipping off the surface like mm-hmm. a stone. Every time it got down, it would right back up and it's not enough of a problem to address it. And so, I mean, at that point it was like, okay, well, this is someone else's responsibility, but I can write code. I can go in and I can do the POC, the proof of concept and show it and be like, look, you know, we can do things better. And that's maybe what I would say, you know, start small. Yeah. Maybe you're the platform team, maybe it's not your responsibility or you don't have ownership over it, but if you have the code and you can go and you can see like, oh, well, this is a Java service, I can just throw open telemetry in there yeah. and boom, it works, and sort of start proving that out in small, isolated cases, then that's the best evidence. Evidence that it can be done is the best evidence of all. It really is like giving them a, a template almost that they can use as a springboard because that first one is always the hardest. And another thing that I feel like often engineers feel like influence and authority just sort of happens magically, but that shit right there, that is what creates influence. Yeah. That is what creates internal authority, showing them like shaming them almost showing them how they can do their own jobs better than the, you know, yeah. that is a shit that accrues over time and earns you credibility. Hey, this seems like a really good time for you to finally introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I'm Austin Parker, principal developer advocate at Lightstep, um, friend of the pod. I don't know. Like, <laughs> we got deep in that real quick. We do. We just, I was going to sit here and say, it's like, oh, this must be a really heavily edited show. So they do like the interview segments and then yeah. I'm much more lackadaisical. Um, I also help write a book on distributed tracing and, uh, I guess I'm most famous now for running a DevOps conference in Animal Crossing. Just goes to show you that your brand doesn't quite turn into what you think it's going to be. <laughs> you know what? I hate unicorns. But you have so many speakers with them on them. Yeah, you know, it's just people just started attributing them to me. And and like, I love aggressively feminizing male-dominated spaces. Yeah. So I just kind of took it and went with it. But like, I've never been a unicorn person. But but now I am. So, you know, personal brands are funny that way. Yeah. Now you're the, you're the unicorn person. I'm the Animal Crossing person. There you go. I really, I, I like what you both, I mean, not just about the branding thing, but just like the way that influence doesn't happen how you expect. And I remember like early in my career, you know, I, I would join a project or I'd join a team and be like, all of this is wrong. I, you know, like we should know better. And I didn't have the credibility. I was, people believed in me and I, I was very lucky that I had a lot of people like going to bat for me, but I didn't have the credibility or the experience to be able to like show them mm-hmm. like yeah. how to go about making things better. And I, I realized like I need to be a little bit more patient 
about that and get some more experience under my belt. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you balance gaining that experience and learning how to like speak the language and, and spending time on like showing the differences without ending up just like getting used to the way things are and becoming like the cynical senior who, who doesn't want to change anything? That is such a good question. It is a good question. I think it's actually one of the things that makes tech like the absolute hellscape that it is because. Oh, I don't think it is. It is in a lot of ways, though. The societal aspects. Relative to the world at large, I think there's a lot to be said for tech. Absolutely. Now, you could just argue that the world is shit. Yeah, I, I will agree with you there. Like, categorically, technology is generally good and has pulled a lot of people. It's young and it's fast moving and it has the ability to correct its mistakes. Yeah, more, more so than a lot of systems. If I look at banking or finance or the entertainment industry, I recoil in horror. Like, I would so much rather be in tech. Absolutely. But I, I think what hurts it a lot, though, is there is this attitude almost of, I paid my dues, I, I did the scut work for a long time, mm. and now I get to call the shots. Like, for the most part, it's not it's not the case everywhere. Yeah. Like, I don't want to say it's, like, universal. But I've been fortunate, because I, I have not really been in environments like that, for sure. I think it depends on the organization, too. Surely it does. I mean, the future is here. It's just very unevenly distributed. Yeah, and maybe we'll have eventual consistency in like the amount of justice in tech organizations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, the glorious future. But like, I don't know. You see posts on like I saw some of the posts going around from like HN the other day, where it's like some person bemoaning that they're an L four at Amazon. And oh, I saw that. That was hilarious. Yeah, and it's like, oh, I, I'm so depressed. I you can go look it up. I don't want to like get, I, I, deconstruct an anonymous post on the internet. Totally. To Shelby's point, though, like, so I think that here's the thing: nobody likes somebody who comes barging in the front door and tells you everything is wrong. Mm. You just like you can't come in like that because there's always so much context and so much history, and it just is going to rub everyone the wrong way if you don't even make an attempt to understand why. Because they have reasons for doing these completely unreasonable things that they've done, you know? Absolutely. And they probably know that they're unreasonable. And and so it's just, like, this is a mistake that I see people making all over the place. And so I think that, like, the right thing to do is to, like, come in humble and come in curious, right? Like, put your curious hat on. Just, like, why is it like this? And really try to understand and try to be useful Another thing that I see people like baseline just failing in their jobs is before they do the shit that they were hired to do, like they're already looking around and they're taking shit off of other people's plates and like critiquing it. Right. Like that is just going to annoy fucking everyone. Right. So like number one, focus on making sure that your own cue is dealt with and that you're, you don't have to be like superhero, but like level up, learn your shit, pull your weight is what I'm saying. Like pull your weight and do what your team is counting on you to do before you start, you know, opining on other people's work, come in like curious and genuinely like trying to learn instead of starting with the, ah, this is terrible. Like start with a, why is this terrible? You know, it's just, it's a subtlety that makes all the difference. And you have to keep that up too. Like that's the challenging part. Which is why it's wonderful to have more junior people on the team, right? It's yeah. wonderful to have a range of distribution skill sets so that you never get locked into the tunnel vision. So, so I think there's this really interesting dialogue that can happen between the senior folks who've been there a while. Like you said, you're kind of like, you're immersed in it. But new people come in, they have those fresh eyes 
and they remind you of it. Yeah, I, I think the most important thing is to always have a process that's able to learn from itself, right? I think, like when I talk about observability, I, t- I like to talk a lot about, you know, the important part of this is not necessarily the tools, the technology, it's the cultural sort of phenomena of looking at data and then being able to explain things, yes, socio-technical systems, and having and having a feedback loop, right? Yes. New people are the lifeblood; like they are the input, they are the signal to the feedback loop of, of mm-hmm. you know, how are things working. Mm-hmm. And I think people that are successful leaders and people that are successful, you know, at growing in an organization or growing at scale are people that are always willing to learn and are always happy to learn yeah. and want to, right? Yeah. And the more senior you get in your role and your org and your position, the more you have to be conscious of performing this, like not just being it, but like actively openly, like performing it, like asking the questions. This is something that I I started to realize that I was doing really badly, like a couple of years ago, which was just that like, I knew that I was open and curious and stuff, but other people didn't know that was in my head. And I wasn't doing a good job of asking the questions thanking people for coming to me. I was happy when people brought me feedback, but I didn't tell them thank you. I didn't act happy. So they didn't know that I was happy. You know, leadership is in so many ways, almost less about what's in your head and more about what you're performing. So other people can see uh, and doing that consistently. Yeah. How people perceive you. How people perceive you. Yes. What you say and what they hear are not the same thing. And you have to be consciously constantly conscious of that. And ironically enough, the more the more you lead, the more you do all this stuff, the harder it becomes because you have to fight harder against people's sort of deference to authority. Oh yeah. And they're just they have made up their minds about you. They have a narrative about you in their heads. They have decided what it is that you're thinking and feeling and saying before you open your mouth. Yeah. And it can be very hard to dislodge that or rattle it or change their perception of what you're saying we could all be better at this oh god yeah yeah everyone everyone can always grow and learn on this on this axis a pro tip that i got from a leader who i really respected a long time ago i asked him like how did you get better at management stuff and he paused and he said i took an improv class it was better than every book that i've ever read on management or leadership so it's all about that active listening and being very fully present mm. and like never saying no always saying yes and and I've I've made you do that ever since. It's been like ten years now, but you know. <laughs> it's like I recommend um, the book from Sydney Decker, uh, "The Field Guide to Understanding Human Error." Yeah, 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 it's about systems and it's about why systems fail, and that's what I recommend to everybody that wants to understand like systems thinking and how to handle incidents and how to build like you know incident response. Shelby, I'm kind of curious about your, you've been like going through this, this process of new job, new role, a lot of actively leveling up and stuff. And like this process of building influence and the shifts in the perception of you, do you feel like you've learned anything interesting? Yeah. I mean, so I've been teaching for such a long time and I've always been a know-it-all. And so I, I would speak authoritatively about things that I wasn't necessarily um, what's the word? Um, authoritative. <laughs> authority about to the point where like less than a year into my first software job, I was designing and, and running a workshop for the users of the Python tool I was working on who were all like rocket scientists. Uh, so I was like teaching rocket scientists like as a baby developer. And what's happening as it makes sense that this would happen is as I learn more and gain more experience, I'm realizing like how little I know and I've sort of circled back around and, and Trudy, you've like given me advice about this before where my lack of experience is itself like a, a thing I can share 
it's a thing I can perform and it's a thing like I can use to help other people. It's been kind of the theme of my career because I love teaching. I taught English and like I love helping people and I especially love helping people do their jobs better and enjoy their jobs more that as I figure things out, I'm like, oh, like there's a part of me that feels like I should have already known this. And there's a part of me that's like, well, if I didn't know it, then other people probably didn't know it. And I can, I can help them and I can help them by like clarifying and connecting the dots for them. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of been focusing on that because otherwise I, I get nervous and I'm like, well, I, you know, I haven't been living in server rooms for the last two decades, so I'm not qualified for anything and and erasing all of those thoughts because like what I am qualified to do is like help people where they're at and get to like the next step in their observability journey or their DevOps journey or whatever. Um, And I think the perspective I have that can benefit the tech community and the DevOps community is that like, it's something we talk about a lot where like the future of DevOps is observability and it's these like modern release engineering practices. And it's about like freeing up our teams and, and Charity, I really appreciated like your post about like future of SRE jobs and stuff. And I've been sort of thinking about like how the future of DevOps is really like, it involves a lot of like training and growing people. And because like in tech, you know, we're, constantly learning. We don't get to like stop learning. There's always going to be new technologies and new concepts and new approaches and new ways to integrate all of that. And, you know, every time you go on a new project or or start a new job, like it's going to be different. And we've been so bad at training people. We basically don't train people anymore. We I don't understand how training would even happen. Nobody knows the answer. Nobody can train you in the answer because nobody fucking knows the answer. Like, I feel like everything that I've learned, I've pretty much, you know, been quote unquote self-taught. And this is where I think systems is maybe different from hardcore computer science. Mm -hmm. Every system is different. It's a fingerprint, Mm -hmm. right? Like it is unique. It is complex. You can only apply past lessons from other systems to a certain extent. And then it takes a great deal of wisdom to know how far that goes. And I feel like training gets kind of dropped around as a, just a panacea for, we should know how to do this, but we don't know this. And I, and the beauty of tech is that we've learned to feel comfortable in that zone of not knowing and partial knowing mm-hmm. and needing to move, move forward anyway. And I guess I'm just kind of skeptical about anything that involves training as a solution because yeah. I just kind of, kind of don't believe in it. <laughs> I use the term training, but I think it's more just like accepting that people aren't going to have the answer. People don't have specific experience in the exact thing that you're looking for. Like I'm arguing that like the tendency to only look for senior engineers is hurting our future in running software. And you yourself have said like, if your team is is healthy and you hire somebody, they should be productive within like six months. And so that's basically what I'm arguing is like, yeah, I absolutely think that we should open the barn doors wider and take more risks on people and trust that people can learn things, you know, which is why it kind of breaks my heart every time that I see someone call themselves a Ruby engineer mm-hmm. or a Java engineer or something. I'm just like, you are not your framework. It doesn't fucking matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Six months is enough time to teach anyone a new programming language, I would say. Even. Yeah. At least to the point where they can be productive, right? Because the dirty secret of programming is that a solid 50 to 60% is uh, Googling yeah. things and the other 50 or 60% is searching Jira and Confluence. Yeah. You know, I tend to agree, like, it's not a training problem. If anything, the desire for training comes from sort of this broken model that I've, I've seen a lot. Like, I, I don't know if it's just... You can teach them where to pointy-clicky in the tool, but you can't teach them how to 
think about something. You can just yeah. give them the opportunity to figure it out and answer their questions when they have them. Exactly. Like the, the analogy I've been using is like, I, I think we do a disservice to programming as a discipline by thinking of it as engineering. Mm. Stepping aside from like, you know, engineering is like a protected class of or field or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think of a team of people developing software is like a, a kitchen. It's like a chef and a bunch of sous chefs, right? Or it's a bunch of chefs. Yeah, yeah. And the sort of traits that are very handy to have as a chef, like, yes, you know a ton of theory. You know a lot of stuff. And a lot of it can be completely self-taught. But it's ingenuity. It's creativity. It's collaboration. Mm -hmm. It's how do we manage, you know, sudden shifts in demand, right? Like, how do you deal with all these rushes? The menu changes over time. Da-da-da-da-da. Like... Everything's changes. And I think the appetite for risk goes in both ways, right? Like there's the managers and the companies who don't want to take risks on people because they don't know the exact framework, or whatever. But the, it also kind of cracks me up whenever I get it. You know, I talk to someone who's looking for a job who's just like, I totally want to work at a startup. But what I want is to have my jobs planned for like three to six months in advance work from nine to five every day yeah. to not have anything change in the roadmap. You know and I'm just like? It's like, that's not a startup for that's you. That's not a startup. Um, to kind of circle back to that first question about that first engineer though, like I gave this poor dude just like a 30 second answer. And like at the end of it, I was like, you can try these things, but also if you're not getting buy-in from your tech leads and you've given it a shot, move on, get a new job. Yeah. There are people out there who are hungry for people like you who are looking for ways to help bring them into the next generation of computing and like the next level of, you know, operating humane services don't hide your light under a bushel don't waste it on people who don't want to be helped yeah you always have to be willing and able to kind of walk away and go on to the next thing and there is kind of i think a divide right now and and, and you see this you know i keep going back to the door for it but like you know the door metrics you know 2016 to 2017 they're you know the elite category it was kind of like the top couple of few percent and then 2018 the last year they published them, of course. Mm. You see it just kind of start to shoot up. Like it grows from 7% to 22%. And it's like achieving like escape velocity. It's going so up so steeply, you know? And, and you would have to imagine that they were still reporting it. It would be 80, 90. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a lagging indicator, right? And yeah. it, these are the teams who have seen something different is going on. Something like an order of magnitude better is going on. And yeah, it's a little bit disruptive. Yeah, it means if you aren't... <laughs> trying new things in tech, you're, you're losing ground. There's no such thing as standing still, right? Mm -hmm. But like everyone else is kind of slowly losing ground. But there are teams out there who have identified that shit can be radically better. And I, I feel like the thing that we have to fight the most is just like this numbness, this feeling of... Complacency. Oh, yeah. Or just being ground down, you know, just like cynicism. Like, well, this is just how it is to work with computers. It's just going to suck and somebody's just got to bite it and eat the, you know, midnight pages. And, yeah. and it just, we just have to spend half of our every day, like grinding through shit that has no core business value. We're just like floundering and trying to figure out how to orient ourselves and whether that was the right bug and how to reproduce it. And are we working on the wrong thing? Cause we can't see what the fuck we're doing, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and our feedback loops are so long that we've lost all the context by the time we realize there's a problem. Like this is well-tried ground at this point, shortening those feedback loops, making them tight, introducing software ownership. The stuff is stuff that like we are figuring out how to do it. And not everyone's interested. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of that you combat through, like we said before, just doing it. 
um, a lot of that you can bet through sort of the natural selection of these things, right? Like yeah. there is a lot of uh, flexibility in all of this. Yeah. And I think what you're seeing more and more is that there are no golden geese left. No. You know, whatever you are doing today, someone will come and they will, you know, fuck it up. Yes. They will outperform you. You will get outperformed. You will get out innovated. You will get left in the dust. And, you know, yep. so. Shifting is the heartbeat of your business, as the other comp folks say. It is the heartbeat. And like people who are like, yeah, my heart can beat once every couple of months. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. that's not great. And what's wild is I think and this is what I'm seeing kind of, I think is starting is this realization that that isn't just a like software only concern, right? Like that's not just, yeah. hey, you need to be deploying on Fridays and every other day because deploying doesn't actually mean anything. It's just how you work. Yeah. Like it's it's a way of doing business and it's a way of talking to your customers and it's a way of actually doing things in the open, being afraid to fail, mm-hmm. not being quite so polished and groomed and whatever else. Like it, it's going to be a transformative change. Doing blameless postmortems across your organization yep. for business folks too, mm-hmm. and, and also democratizing data, right? Fuck yeah, democratizing production. Yes, so all of the stuff you know, I harp on this so much. It's like all the stuff that right now you were probably collecting the same data fifteen different times for slightly different purposes. Mm-hmm. You can just put all that shit in there at the yeah. point of you know writing the code. You can just have observability. It's not that hard, and then you're just presenting different views to people. That's the thing. It's not only it's not that hard. It's so much easier. Yes, and it's it's twenty times easier than what you're doing. It's so fucking easy. You're deduplicating yeah. tools. You're yeah. improving performance. You're saving money. You're, you're making sure that the people using your site on a browser are a lot happier because they don't have like twenty different <laughs> analytic libraries. They have like one. This is one of the things that I, I love so much about Launch Darkly folks is that they aren't just like engineers, engineers, engineers. They're like no, 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 no. Everybody does a better job when they can get, get close to production safely and like yeah. have control over sales engineers in the field, you know, flipping the mm-hmm. thing in the middle of a sales demo, turn it on for their customer, you know, like Flip the switch. you don't have to be one of the core people writing code to have an interest in being able to look at, examine, modify production. It makes you better at your job. Yeah. It's a requirement, right? It's not, we're, it we're well past the time of this being some newfangled experiment. I think yeah. the evidence has borne out. It's not an argument. That there's no argument here. There's just like, are you doing it or are you not doing it? And if you're not doing it, then you got to target paint on your back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that the next big hump is CD. Like, I think that CI, you know, the industry is like, yeah, I've got. But CD, like, the idea that as soon as you merge your code back to main, it automatically goes out within a few minutes. Like it doesn't have to be visible to everyone. We're not stupid, right? But like this is where the the whole constellation of tools comes in, right? Like you use your feature flags, but you get if your code is not in production, it may as well not exist. It is decaying. Yeah. It is rotting. It is stale. You need to get that shit out there fast. And you should have this ticking clock in the back of your head, just like ah, you know, and this sort of muscle memory of just like going and looking at it. Yeah. I agree. Anyway. I have one more question that I kind of wanted to run by you, which is sort of like the bookend parallel to the one about the engineer, which was one from a newish manager, let's say, who's like, I've drunk the Kool-Aid. Like, I'm all in. I really want my team to be engaged in some of these newer ways. And like, I've dropped the articles and the Slack, whatever. But they keep telling me they're underwater. They don't have time to learn, you know. And they're the engineers. Like, if I was still an engineer, I feel like I would know what to do to, like, you know, start doing it myself, get get my team on board. But, like, as a manager, it feels like 
pushing on spaghetti. Like you're pushing on a wet noodle. Like mm. what do I do? Like as a newish manager, like I'm at a loss. Hmm. Well, they don't let me manage people. No, um, no I, I don't know. Actually, it's a good question. I think that, you know, when you're a manager, even a new manager, a lot of what you do really winds up in incentives, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's kind of your lever yeah. is incentivizing or disincentivizing behavior. And so the sort of the dumb, naive answer is you make it fun, right? Like mm-hmm. people enjoy things that are enjoyable, so incentivize people doing the right things, right? Like the other incentive you have as a manager, and I was actually going to say this for the, the platform question earlier, checklists, process, right? Like process is a remarkably effective tool to wield in virtue or in vice. And in this case, if you think of you know observability as a virtuous thing, which I do, mm-hmm. then use sort of the ability you have to set process to gradually introduce these concepts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, things like, Production readiness checklists, observability checklist, you know, if you have a runbook, like adding things into runbooks, making it part of retrospectives and incident review and trying to like block out time. As a manager, you have a pretty big amount of control over people's time in broad strokes. So you can start to kind of say, like, okay, we're going to have a couple hours or a Friday or a hackathon or yeah. or something. I think the, the one thing I would say not to do is like, don't tell people to do it when it's not work time. Oh yeah. Jesus Christ. Right? Of course. Like don't, don't encourage people to go do stuff like after hours. Yeah. So I, I like the way you're framing that. I think that one under acknowledged tool that managers have is the job ladder Mm -hmm. the levels Mm. like if they say no one gets promoted to senior engineer unless you are you know writing and shipping maintainable services unless you are on call metrics are you know sustainable unless you're mentoring you know whatever you can say you know no one gets to be staff engineer unless you are keeping up on you know the trends in industry that will help us keep ahead of the waves of i think that that stuff is is slow moving and it doesn't feel as satisfactory, especially to us engineers, but it is deeply powerful and it can move mountains given time yeah. and like the right coaching. You can also, something that I've used before is the rule that whatever you praise, you will get more of. <laughs> yeah. But I was going to say money, not necessarily money, like not necessarily salary, but like money for tools. You can pay for tools. Yeah, you can sign the check for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. If you can kind of take aside one of your more impressionable engineers and like convince him or her that this is the coolest shit ever and like maybe, you know, she'd be willing to do like a hack week on it and you can like pair, get her excited about and stuff. And then you praise that shit to high heaven and you're just like, look how awesome this is. This is great. You know, like yeah. That, modeling. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. just, you set someone up to succeed at it and then you point at how successful it was and you keep, here's a mistake that I see managers do. They praise it once or they point it out once and never again. Mm. Like if week after week, your teams are in a better place, you have to keep bringing it up and keep pointing it out and keep, keep going. Remember how much this used to suck? <laughs> Look how much better this is. Yeah. And not just with your team, not just yeah. with the engineers, but also to your other managers. You evangelize that shit. Both horizontally and vertically. So make sure that all, like, all the other managers know, make sure that your boss knows, that their boss knows. Excitement is so contagious. 
And like so many managers don't use it. (laughs) Yeah. If you are excited, they'll be excited. Yeah. No, I really like the idea of just like taking someone aside and adjusting priorities for them because that's the real power you have if you're a manager is you can set priorities, maybe not like top level, but you, you know, it's, you're running a team. And so you can get them excited and clear their plate. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in a much better position as a manager than as like the, you know, mid-level engineer who's excited about a thing and they're too swamped with work to even make time to try things out. So. Yeah. This was the other piece of advice that I, I had for that mid-level engineer, though, was do you have management support? Hmm. Because managers should be all over this shit. Like, the, the thing is that you can't pitch it to them in engineering terms. But if you're a mid-level engineer and you take this stuff to the engineers and you pitch it to them in, in terms of, like, headcount and how much more time you'll have for, you know, your mean time to recovery. Like, you have to speak manager language, yeah. which comes down to money eventually. But oh my God, the case is so powerful and it can be made and you can use all this materials that, you know, you say you're dropping into Slack to show where are the inefficiencies in your system? Where are the weeks of engineering time that are going like unpredictably, which is the worst kind of planning, just like all of a sudden your roadmaps derailed because you have to do this thing because nobody could understand your systems for the last week, you know, get some managers convinced and then they can put their tools to work and uh, maybe you make some progress. Yeah, and and be aware of sort of what you're already doing. Yeah. One thing I've seen trip people up is especially, you know, at a bigger, more complicated organization, you know, duplicating, triplicating, turf wars can be a thing. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of really strong that can both be good and bad, right? Cuz sometimes You got to go looking for allies. Yeah. And a lot of times those allies can be unexpected, right? Like the mm-hmm. people that might be like if you have, you know, some big internal monitoring things, that someone built and kind of dropped on everyone and then walked off and like, go find the person that's responsible for it now. Cause there's a pretty good chance that they don't want to deal with running, you know, Nagios dashboards or, Hell yeah. you know, janitoring Grafana. Never assume that someone's not an ally. Yeah. Like always give them the chance to surprise you because some of the most surprising allies will come out of that, but you've got to give them the chance and not write them off. Mm-hmm. That's true. Awesome. This has been absolutely a delight. It has been. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest in the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time. 